0: In lesser importance, this week was a very important week because baseball spring training started. Pitchers and catchers reported, this is the year for the Dodgers. I mean, for the team that I root for. Um, what, what, what do you think of when you think of baseball at the beginning of, of each game? The Angels boring? No, at the beginning of each game. We're, we're not taking some of those other statements. We're going to win, new beginning, but what's the tradition at the beginning? National anthem, right? I can remember my, my first year of college, five, six years ago, and um, <laughs> <laughs> my first year of college and my roommate that I hadn't met, we, we met each other, we found out we were both huge baseball fans, huge Dodger fans, but really didn't matter the team if we just got to go to a baseball game and I don't recommend this to our college students, but we skipped out on some of the orientation to go see an Angels game, and, um, because we thought, hey, we can get to know each other better this way, and um, so I think we skipped how to get to know the person sleeping in the room next to you, or something like that. We're like, okay, let's just go to a baseball game instead, and I can remember, because at that point in time, there had just been an incident worldwide where some of our servicemen were lost. And at the beginning of the game, we stood up to sing the National Anthem and the flag was at half-mast. And we sang together this song of our country. And it was just an amazing time, the, the, the feelings that welled up inside of me. That's one of the things when I think of, of baseball is the National Anthem. Now what does the National Anthem really celebrate for us? It, it celebrates what I would argue is our, our as a nation, one of our core foundational principles, that of freedom right? At the end of it, the land of the free. free and that's what it's about. And it's it's one of these universal things that we as Americans hold to, this consecrated ideal of freedom. In the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable right. rights, that among these are life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Not so sure about the last one, whether that's a, an unalienable right, but that's a whole different discussion. But rights go along with freedom, right? We have a freedom to pursue these rights. That's why this Declaration of Independence, that we have the freedom to pursue these things that we should be able to. It's almost a universal belief among Americans that we should be able to do what we want to do, that pursuit of happiness. So long as we don't hurt anybody. But this morning, I I come to that and I question that. And, And don't get me wrong, I am patriotic. I love America. I love that we have freedom. I love that we have freedom to worship. But is freedom our highest value? Is the ability to pursue my rights the thing that I should hold to and cling to most dear? Absolutely not. But that's the culture that we live in. Your freedom, your rights are what you hold to most dear. And I think that has filtered so many times as culture does. Culture filters into our life, right? Often in ways we don't even realize it. And so culture, I think, with freedom and rights has filtered into our lives. What are some of the rights that that we think that we have that we might get annoyed with if, if we lose? Any ideas? You can interact this morning. Freedom to worship, okay? I like that one. That's a good one. Free speech, okay? Now, now let, let me narrow us down to a little bit more personal. Within the body of Christ, what are things that I feel like I deserve that I should be able to have? The Bible? Think interpersonal relationships. Are there things that we hold to that sometimes maybe aren't so good to hold to? Anyone walk in this morning and have someone sitting in your seat? Wait a minute, wait a <laughs> I, okay, first thing, you don't have little name plaques. No, <laughs> I thought about this last week. We went to visit a church up where we were vacationing, and we, we were there early because that's what you do when you're visiting a church. And, and we sat down, and I remember thinking, I just took somebody's seat. <laughs> I thought somebody's really annoyed with me this morning. <laughs> See where I'm getting at with, with when I'm asking what kinds of personal, what other things do we maybe get annoyed with each other at in the body of Christ? Music. music preferences, right? We can have all kinds of preferences, and 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 we we really want music and worship the way that we want it. And, and when we think of rights, we are often actually thinking of I want things the way that I want them. I want to be able to do what I want when I want. Again, rights are not necessarily bad. The right to worship. The right to having a Bible. These are precious, precious things that we hold to that God is using for His glory. But it is so easy to take rights and turn them into something else. As Pastor Andrew started to talk about last week, and because the text, Paul is going to take three chapters to develop one argument. and So we just got the taste of it last week. We know that the church at Corinth... One of their issues was food offered idols, right? Meat offered idols. And for some people, especially those that had come out of idol worship, that was a problem. That was a, a, a stumbling block and to see you eating some of that meat for them would have been, you are worshiping an idol. What's going on? It would have been a problem in the body of Christ. Others were like, idols are nothing. Remember Andrew talking about this? Idols are nothing. It's meat. I like meat. And, and so they, they ate because that's where they got most of the meat. And we had a conflict that was developing in the church of, of between those that were holding to rights and saying, I should not have my rights infringed on by your preferences. And when we get to that point, the body of Christ suffers because now we are putting ourselves above loving our brothers. And that's where Paul went last week at the beginning of that. He said, you think you're so knowledgeable. You think you know what's right and wrong in these gray areas. And actually, you don't even know enough to know that you don't know enough. But instead, put a priority on loving each other. See, they were holding to personal rights. We do the same thing. I have a right to say what I want when I want. I'm just being expressive. I'm just being expressing my opinion, and that should be okay. I have the right and obligation to convince you I'm right. (laughs) Ever feel that? Yeah, we do that. I have a right to do whatever my conscience allows me to do. Don't you infringe on what I think is okay to do. You know, And and Pastor Andrew mentioned several areas where we see culture in the church battling that right now. I have a, a right to drink when I want or to smoke or to have tattoos or whatever those things may be. Because we're basing everything on do I think it's okay rather than, which is a rights issue rather than a, a higher issue. I have the right to dress the way I want. We're seeing all kinds of blogs about modesty right now. And the pendulum's going like this back and forth. I have the right to watch what I want. I have a right so on and so forth. We can go on and on and on. So this is an important issue for the church this is an important issue for us. And Paul is dealing with it with, with meat offered to idols. That's not our issue. I haven't complained about anyone in here that you ate meat this last week. But we have all kinds of other things that we divide over and hold dearly to. I'd like to start with, with going back and reading the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it almost seems like it's a whole different subject. Paul's all of a sudden talking about money and getting paid for what he does and support, but it's it's in a line of the same argument. And we have to understand chapter nine in light of chapter eight and in chap in light of chapter ten. Paul is making one argument here and just point after point after point. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. I'd like to start reading at verse nine and catch the end of that which helps us understand how how chapter 9 starts out. Remember yesterday, some of those English Bibles didn't have verse numbers in it, the early ones. And and in the Greek, we didn't have verse numbers. We didn't have chapter chapter numbers. And so the arguments in the letter just just flowed together. And so this is all one argument, starting at verse 9 of chapter 8. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in idols' temples, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul's making a bold statement there to say, it's not about your rights. You're using your rights to destroy your brother who Christ died for. There's a different principle that needs to be at work here. And then verse 13, the one that, that probably made them start to, to go, Whoa. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, or I will never ever eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And Paul then uses himself as an example in verse 13. I'll even be willing to not eat meat for the sake of my brother. For the sake of his conscience. And that's the lead-in into chapter 9 because chapter 9, Paul now will continue and he'll argue from his example, from his experience. And keep in mind the context. He's just going to drill it in home to the church at Corinth. It's not about your rights. It's about something far, far more important. Let's orient, reorient our thinking how Christ would want a story in it. And so Paul, in in chapter 9, will talk about some ways that he has given up his rights for the church at Corinth. He flips it around and he's basically saying, okay, you want to talk about rights? Let's talk about rights. Here's some of my rights. Here's what I've chosen to give up because all of you are my weaker brother. Think of how the strong ones in Corinth that thought they were so smart felt at that point. That's the background of what we come to. Sort of to, to understand one of the issues, the main issue that Paul is, is going to talk about in this text, when an itinerant preacher would come around and from city to city and when you stay at a church, the custom was that church would support them, give them food, give them lodging, a means of sustenance, a, a living. They would earn their living by what they were doing. Paul, however, had chosen to take a different path. Hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 9. Just turn over to Acts 18, which is the, the story of when he came to Corinth, some of his ministry there. Acts 18. We're just going to read the first three verses by way of background. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So this is the first time he's coming to Corinth to, to found the church there. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. Catch that? For they were tent makers by trade. What did Paul do when he went to Corinth? He worked. He made tents. It's what he knew how to do. He stayed with other tent makers. That, that, now for us, it's like, oh, okay, that's cool. For them, that's a problem. They're like, what? He did what? See, the wise men, so to speak, the elite, the the people that came around to speak to churches or to speak to people, they would never do such a thing. In fact, to the Greeks, manual labor was despised. And so this was something that they... Some in the church were looking at Paul thinking, "I, I don't even know if he's really that good of an apostle. He's having to work. Whereas Paul chose to not take his living from the church at Corinth for some very interesting reasons. But that was the problem. He's not taking money from them like the respectable leaders. And so in chapter 9, Paul begins to talk about why and he addresses this issue and and begins to use himself as an ultimate example, other than Christ, of what they should follow, what they should imitate. See, so we see in Paul's example that personal rights must be set aside when they hinder an effective witness of the Gospel and when they endanger the faith of other believers. And so we come to chapter 9. An interesting argument. And this morning what I'd like to do is, is really spend the first two-thirds of our time following Paul's argument through. Understanding Paul's argument. And then we'll draw some applications at the end. Sometimes we do that while we're going. But I, I really want us to understand Paul's argument. Paul's argument. And he begins in verses 1 and 2 with his position. Paul has apostle sized rights. Think of McDonald's and supersize me. Paul has apostle sized rights. Let's read together verses 1 and 2. Am I not free? Now keep in mind, you have to understand chapter 8 where he just said, I'm willing to give up meat myself. The very next thing he says, Am I not free? I have just as much freedom as you. In fact, Some of the strong in Corinth might have been saying, well, you want me to give up eating what I love to eat for the sake of someone that thinks it's wrong? I'm free to do that. And Paul then answers, well, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He uses four rhetorical questions here in the Greek. They all assume a yes answer. There's no real question here. Am I not free? Yes, I am. Am I not an apostle? Absolutely, I am. And he's talking about his authority and his rights. The next two questions deal with two of the, the proofs of his apostleship. Some may have been questioning his apostleship in, in Corinth. In fact, we know in 2 Corinthians that they will end up questioning his apostleship. And just for those that really love the different layers of Scripture, Paul is brilliantly, as he talks about his example, also teaching the church at Corinth in some areas where they're weak. Because they had issues with whether or not he was an apostle, and they had issues with giving and following through with giving and supporting those that were ministering in their midst. And so those are the two aspects of his example he's going to use to teach them as a subpoint. while his main example is giving up rights. So he says, am I not an apostle? Then the two two um, qualifications are two proofs of his apostleship. Have I not seen our Lord? We know from Acts 1.22 as they were choosing a new apostle to to replace Judas, one of the requirements was that they had to be a witness to the resurrection of the Lord. And Paul was a witness to that resurrection. At the road of Damascus, Jesus came to him. And he saw the risen Lord. And so he's establishing his authority. And then the real punch in the gut for them, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And and, and he really brings it to them. He says, if I'm not an apostle, if I'm not teaching God's Word, would you even be saved? You're the proof of my apostleship. That word for seal there, if you remember, a seal was something that a dignitary or someone in authority as they closed a letter or an edict or something, they would take and melt hot wax over the the seam of it, and they would use their signet ring, which only they had, and they would press it into the, the wax. And that seal was an authoritative proof that this letter was from this person. So when Paul says, you are my seal, he's saying, the work of God in your life, the fact that you're believers, proves it authenticates my apostleship that I am coming with a true message from God. So Paul starts by saying he has apostle-sized rights. Sort of my term. It sort of helps me understand what, he, what he's saying there. But, but think about what he's saying. He's saying, okay, even I'm willing to not eat meat, I'm willing to not give up my rights, and I'm an apostle. And, and he's not directly saying this, but the implication to them would be, if I'm willing to do this as an apostle... One who has authority, one who doesn't even have to give up his rights, how much more should you? It would be like if you, if you go to work tomorrow morning and the, the founder of the company, or the founder and CEO of the company comes to you and says, you know what, um, I'd like you to buy me lunch today. What do you say to him? Sure, why? Because he's in a position of authority, right? Okay, so what if he came to you instead and said, you know what, you've been doing such a good job, I'd like to buy you lunch today. That's better, right? Why is it better? (laughs) He can afford it. (laughs) Yeah. Sure, Ruth Chris is just down the street. Let's go. Now, what I'm trying to illustrate is as as the boss, as the CEO, he can really come in. He has the authority to tell you to do whatever. He might say, you know, I have three projects for you to do today. I need them done by the end of the day. And you may think that's nuts. But what do you do? You try to do them because he has authority. Right? What, What happens if you look at him and say, no, I don't feel like doing that today? The good news is you get a lot of time off. Bad news is no paycheck. (laughs) See, Paul is arguing here. He's showing his authority and that he doesn't have to give up meat if he doesn't want to. Uh, Especially him. He doesn't have to, to give up anything. But as he's going to continue to argue, he does. And because of his authority, it's even more powerful. It's more powerful as an example to the Corinthians. Because they should be thinking, man, if Paul's willing to do this, how much more can I? You know, the, other, the other day, one of our kids, we were sitting around the table and one of them said, you know, you and mom are lucky. You get to sit around and do nothing all day while we go to school. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and... and 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 we tried to explain, well, dad goes to work and mom does all kinds of stuff around the house. She's working 24 hours a day. And they thought they were giving up more of their rights. But in reality, the parent is giving up so many of their rights to parent, right? You're giving up the right to freedom. You're giving up the right to just vacation all day because you're working to provide for a family. Paul, in that same way, is, as your parent, I'm giving up far more than you are. So listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. Isn't that a powerful beginning to an argument? Establishing his authority. Then he goes on, and he's going to deal with this issue of money. Remember Tentmaker? I said that was sort of a core issue to this. He's going to deal with this issue of money and whether or not he had a right to receive support from this church. Verses 3-6. through this is my defense to all who would examine me. And that verse is probably pointing forward to what follows, which is why I have it in this point. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Do you see one of the common words in every question? What is it? Right. And Paul here is addressing, okay, he's coming back to, you think you have rights? Let's talk about rights. And, and he here, the point number two is, as a full-time minister, Paul has a right to support that he can live on. He has a right to support that he can live on. The church should be doing this for him. This is part of his example. And, and, and keep in mind, the church struggled a little bit with giving, and so this was probably a punch in the gut there, but he's setting them up for for his argument and the conclusion later in the chapter, and you've got to see this as just a total setup. It's awesome. And here he's 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 saying he he begins to make a case that he is the strong one that's giving up something they should have been giving the, to him. A couple of those statements: Do we have the right to eat and drink? In verse four, in verse six, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? One of the things he's establishing is he has a right to earn a living from ministry. Some might have been saying, well, you know that Paul, he, he was only here for a while, so I don't know if we should support him. Or, you know, you know pastors, they only work one day a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of you have told me that. Jokingly, I know. <laughs> but you could see them arguing, okay, he doesn't really deserve that much support. You know, and... As we saw earlier in Corinth, some of the, they were all in all these factions, right? Some were after Apollos, some were after Cephas. So they had separated out and so those little factions wouldn't have wanted to support the other pastor. And he starts by saying, we have a right. And he uses the same word that we read in chapter 8, verse 9, where he said, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he says... These are our rights. We have a right to earn a living. That middle verse, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He gives examples there. But he says, I have a right to provide for a family by the ministry. It's not just that you give me enough to live on. I have a right for you to give enough for the family to live on, Paul is saying. See, when you bring along a wife, she has to eat too, usually. She needs a place to stay as well. And bringing along a wife almost always meant bringing along children. Especially in the ancient world where there was no birth control. That just was part of a, a family. You, you have a wife, you have children. So Paul is, is stating his rights here. This is his bill of rights. I have a right to earn a living for ministry. I have a right to have enough to provide a family. The brothers of the Lord, that's probably the brothers of Jesus that were born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus great just a little side thing it looks as if they had at this point turned to christ and were leaders in the church and were serving god we know that during the life of christ there was some animosity at times thought he was crazy at times and part of his argument here part is that others in ministry have the same right shouldn't i and so his point is those in full-time ministry deserve a fair livable honoring wage And he's telling this to the church at Corinth. A little awkward to say to them, but he's setting up his case. We go on in verse 7 and point number 3. Paul gives an overwhelming six reasons to back up his right for material support. So he stated his rights. His bill of rights is point number 2. And now he's going to give the basis for those rights. He's pounding at home, isn't he? He's making a point on this issue. So let's start at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of his, the milk? And he starts with the argument of common sense. The first basis, the first reason for this support is it's common sense. And he gives them three obvious things. Soldier. Soldier isn't fighting all day and at night going and getting a second job so he can have a place to live and and eat, right? We feed our soldiers. We give them a place to live. We give them a living. He then moves to a farmer who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit. He said, it's just customary. This is common practice. You know this, guys. Soldier, you give him a living. Farmer, he makes his living off what he's farming. His work is directly related to his living. Then he goes to the shepherd or who tends a flock without getting some of his milk. These were all paid from their occupation. Interestingly enough, I I actually think these are all examples of ministry too. Paul fought for his, his people, maybe not with swords, but he fought in prayer and spiritual battle. He was a soldier for the churches he founded. He was a farmer. He sowed the seed. He was a shepherd. He continued to bring them along and shepherd them and to pastor them. So his first argument, first basis is it's obvious, it's common sense. Then he moves on, and we'll just move through these, these arguments. Um, verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And so your second letter B there, the second argument, is um, he, the basis of spiritual, scriptural instruction. The law being the Pentateuch, going back to the Old Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He certainly not speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. And he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 here, a command that says you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading grain. And we know that on the threshing floor they would bring in the grain and the ox would walk on the grain and sometimes carry a heavy stone or um, wood with weight on it and it would crush the grain. And then they would come and throw it in the air and the, in the breeze and the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall down. And so one of the instructions was the ox should be allowed to eat while he's working. Okay? If he's helping you, you should help him. He should be allowed to eat. And Paul is doing what all the rabbis actually, if you look at some of the, the literature of the time, the rabbis understood this verse to mean more than just oxen. And and it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, which means if God is that concerned about some dumb animal, sorry for animal lovers, but without a conscience and without an ability to reason, if He's that concerned about a dumb animal, how much more is He concerned about men and women that He created in the image of God? See how it's an argument from the lesser to the greater? So if it's true of ox, it's got to be true of God's people. And so Paul's second basis for this, this right is the Word of God, the Old Testament. We'll keep moving. There's more we could say on a lot of these, but I want to keep moving through it. Verse 11, third basis for, for this right is reciprocity. Spiritual work has real value and should be rewarded as such. Reciprocity means if I do something for you, you do something for me, okay? makes sense? And so verse 11 talks about this, and in verse 11 it says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the wording there actually shows that the spiritual things are of greater value than the material things. Is it too much that you provide some help for us, some material things for us? And so there should, be, there should be a response. Spiritual work deserves some sort of value and some sort of reward. He goes on then, the fourth basis for this right. He said there's a precedent of how others are supported. Others, and he's already stated his claim as an apostle, that others are supported. Why not us? In verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more... Or do not we even more? Now keep in mind, what was Paul to the church at Corinth? He was the founder of the church. And so he's arguing, I founded this church. I started this church. I've given my all for this church. Do, we, do I not even more deserve some sort of a, a response to that? To earn a living from that? Keep in mind, he's making a case that he has chosen not to follow through on. Right? And I can just picture him writing at this point. He's gone through four of these bases, and it's killing him because he's like, okay, they're getting the wrong idea here. It looks like I'm demanding money for what I'm doing. Whereas he's making a, a, a point that he has a right to this. And if we're talking about rights, let's think about it. And so the the rest of verse 12, I think, is is just sort of, he, he blurts out what's coming. And it's a preview of what he starts in verse 15. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We'll come back to that because that's the conclusion today of what I want to talk about. Because in verse 13 and 14, he gives us a couple more reasons why he deserves to, be, to have support for his ministry. 13, he appeals to the priesthood. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings. And they would have gotten this. This was true of Jewish, um, faith. This was true of the, the secular temples, the, the pagan temples that were in Corinth. The priest got a share of it. We know from Leviticus 2, 3, and 10, and, and throughout the, the instructions to the priests that people would bring them an offering. They would sacrifice part of it. The rest of it was for their living, for their family. And so they would, they would eat that. They could share that. Same thing happened in pagan, um, pagan practice. And Paul's saying, okay, in even the pagan temples in your town, in even worship back at Jerusalem, people that, whose full-time ministry is, is for, the, for God, for, for, for their God, whatever that is, they draw sustenance, they draw support from what they're doing. And then verse 14, it's his last basis. And this is Paul, again, just the brilliant argumenter that he is. He saves the best for last. And so I've interpreted a little bit here. Oh yeah, one last thing. Jesus commanded it. You know, just sort of, in case you didn't like the other five, boom! And in verse 14 it says, in the same way the Lord, he's referring to Jesus there, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the Gospel should get their living by the Gospel. How are you going to argue that one, guys? Do you see where he's going with that? And he's probably referring here to when Jesus sent out the the 70 or 72, depending on your translation. He commissions them, and then later he commissions the apostles to go out. and, And he says at that point in time, don't take anything with you. Draw support from the houses, the people you're ministering to. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And so that's probably what Paul is referring to here is Jesus' own command as He sends people out. We saw Paul do the same thing in 1 Timothy 5, if you remember studying that, verse 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And he's speaking financial support there with with honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's the Old Testament Deuteronomy passage. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's Jesus' instruction in the New Testament. If you want to look those up, Luke 10.7 or Matthew 10.8 or a couple places you can look those up. So six basis for his right to receive support. Do you see the argument he's making? I'm an apostle. Here's my bill of rights. Here's six reasons why I definitely, there is no doubt that I have this right. It's like going to your boss and asking for a raise, and you don't just have one good reason, you have six. And we get to the last point. Because like I said, Paul is setting them up. He's setting them up for the gotcha. And we see that in verse 12 and in verse 15. Today we're just going to look at those verses, but it'll be we'll expand that next week. In a stunning reversal, point number four in your notes, in a stunning reversal, Paul gives gave up this right so he could better share the Gospel. Go back to verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. Just think about that verse. Pick that apart a little bit. We have not made use of this right. Does Paul deserve this? Yeah. Any doubt at this point? (laughs) He says, no, I, I chose not to go there. But we endure anything, and he's the wording. There is: I'm willing to endure difficulties. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to endure hardships. And this is the point. This is why we worship the way we worship this morning, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What's his highest priority? The gospel of Christ. Where do personal rights match with with the, the sharing the gospel? Way lower. He's like, I am not going to put an obstacle, anything in the way. And that word for obstacle was used of tearing up a road when an army was advancing because it was a lot harder to get an army across the torn up road or no road. And so it became a way that that army could not advance anymore. And Paul says, I am so concerned about the Gospel of Christ that I'm willing to give up my most basic right so that you will hear what God has to say to you so that you can freely hear the most incredible news you need to hear, that of salvation. That's the gotcha. He set him up that he deserves this, and he finally says, but even as an apostle, I'm willing to give that up for your sake as the weaker brother. Imagine sitting in the church at Corinth, hearing this letter read to you. And you get to that point and it should be like a knife in the heart that convicts and steps on toes. If Paul is willing to give up a living and we know that he toiled and there's some other verses in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, and 9 you can look at, he worked hard. He worked after hours to make tents to support himself. If he was willing to do all that and I'm not willing to give up part of my diet for my brother... Do you you see how hypocritical that is? And he called him on it and pinned him to the wall on it. Why was this a stumbling block? And and the the word obstacle there comes back to the stumbling block that he was using in verse 8. You know, there's a lot of of guesses, a lot of um, possibilities for why this was a stumbling block to them. Uh, One of the biggest ones, I think, is what we've already talked about at Corinth, the patronage system. Remember that? The rich... Would give gifts to and, and support to those that were poor or those that were, were um, had less social status, and what did they expect out of that? Service, favors, and so for, in Corinth, to give somebody money was to give an expectation of the return of a favor. We never see that in politics. We do all the time, right? You donate to political campaigns, you're expecting that, that that candidate will somehow serve your purposes. I think that's probably the biggest one here. Um, they, they do, we know from 2 Corinthians, they had a problem with giving. They, they a lot of times would say, oh yeah, we want to do that. Or yeah, we, want to do, we think we should support the church at, at Jerusalem and those in need. We think we should support our pastors, but then they rarely carried it through. And so in 2 Corinthians 8.11, for instance, Paul says, So now finish doing this as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And he spends a couple chapters in 2 Corinthians talking about giving. So this was a huge issue in the church. And I think he's pounding them on that too. But what are we willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? And a lot of you have gone on mission trips with us, right? How many of you have gone on, on a mission trip sometime here, here at Village? Especially Yugo, when we go down to Yugo, we asked you to give up certain things, didn't we? Remember what some of those things were? We said, don't wear red. Because red was a, a, a sign in, in some circles there, in conservative circles there, of, of a lady of the night or a person of the night. And so we asked you to give up the personal right to wear red. Is wearing red wrong? No. Good thing, huh, Joel? Uh, (laughs) It's not wrong for us. And Jeremiah, there we go. (laughs) But for that, we said, can you give that up for a week? We asked any, any couples to give up any sort of physical contact. Because the little kids down there, they see you even look wrong at somebody and you're married in their eyes. One trip, even though I had no physical contact, one trip I was married to like three or four different girls. Not really, just... That's what the kids thought. That's how careful we had to be. We give up rights for the sake of the Gospel. Not to mention giving up a week. Some gave up a week of work. Giving up a right to safety. Giving up all of our rights. Giving up a right to lice-free hair for the sake of the Gospel. Do you see where Paul's going with this? He's setting an ordering of priorities. And village, the Gospel is our highest priority. What would we be willing to give up for someone to be saved? That's the bottom line. And I hope it's just about everything. I'm not talking about core principles of of our faith. We're talking gray areas and preferences here. And Paul's going to expand on that in in the passage we'll talk about next week. See, there's a difference in having a right and choosing to exercise it. In America, in our our exercise of our freedom, we often think that if we have a right, we must exercise it. But Paul is saying, no, no. That's not how you make these kinds of decisions. By way of application in your notes, I just want to mention a few things. First section is main application, his point about giving up our rights for the gospel. Second section, he's also making points to this church about support and financial support of those that are working there. But in the main application, our rights and wants are lesser priorities than the gospel and loving our brothers. Always think of the gospel first. What will help its acceptance? What will hinder it? Those are better questions to ask when thinking of what can I do? Be willing to give up your rights in this for the sake of the Gospel and loving each other. That, that's why the, the whole discussion of modesty right now and, and the blogs, and, and and I'm going to come back to this sometime. I may write something on it, but the, the blogs that are, are now sort of the pendulum swinging the other way and saying, well, no, we, for the women, we shouldn't have to even consider the guys. It, it's all on them. and, and it, Well, it is on them and it's on you because the, the scriptural principle here is to give up our rights for each other. And young ladies, I'm seeing so many arguments out there that are tearing you down even though they sound so appealing. We'll save that soapbox. Talk to me if you want to know more about that. But be willing to be inconvenienced and sacrifice for the Gospel. See, when we start to think about rights, we often also think about, I don't even want to be inconvenienced. Am I okay being inconvenienced to serve you here? Are you okay being inconvenienced to serve me and to serve each other? I hope so. Because love is more important than my comfort, than my convenience. The Gospel is more important than what I feel like doing today. That's the main application Paul is making here. A couple of other statements there. We never arrive at a position where our rights are more important. Paul was an apostle and gave up his rights. Remember, you are sometimes the stronger one and sometimes the weaker one. I think about that if something annoys me sometimes. I think about, well, I I probably annoy others sometimes. (laughs) They show me a lot of grace, so I need to show them a lot of grace. Paul is turning the tables on them here and saying, you're the weaker ones that I gave up something for. The last one there into the main lessons. Whether we can or cannot do something is only the first step in making a decision. Now it's part of the process. Our first step is, does the Bible allow me to do this? Because if the Bible says not to do it, there are no other steps. We don't do it. Period. There, it is not a right. But that's the first step, but it's only the first step. How will this affect the Gospel? How will this affect my brother and sister in Christ? How will this bring glory to God? Those are the next steps in deciding what we should or shouldn't do. You want to know what to do this week? Ask those questions. How will this affect the Gospel? How will this affect my brothers and sisters? How will this bring glory to God? That'll help you decide. The other set of lessons, lessons on paying pastors. And I I fully recognize that I'm up here as a paid pastor from this congregation. And, and, And I want to commend you Because I have seen 25 years, a little more than that, being here of faithfulness in this congregation to giving. And faithfulness to the work of God. Faithfulness to honoring your pastors and those in ministry. It is such a joy and privilege to serve here and to minister here with co-laborers in Christ. And so many of these principles you have put into practice. Thank you. Let's go through them. No one model of support is absolute. Paul is not saying that all ministers should give up being paid for the ministry. Happy and I thought of, maybe I'd come up and we'd announce to our wives in front of you all that we'd no longer be taking a salary. (laughs) That's not what Paul is saying. Because who does he mention? He mentions all these other apostles that are taking a salary, and only he and Barnabas have chosen not to. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways of doing it. Why did Paul not take a salary? Because it would cause a stumbling block to the gospel at Corinth. We know he did at other churches. In, in fact, if you look up 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, and we don't have time this morning, he talks about that other churches are actually paying him while he's at Corinth and supporting his ministry. So there's no one model of, no, no one model of support is absolute. It depends. On, on the needs of the situation. Second point. Ministers should be provided with a reasonable and adequate living so they are not preoccupied with providing for their family rather than devoting themselves to the work of ministry. Now this isn't always possible, which is why the first one, there's no one model of support that is absolute. But the idea that Paul is saying here in, when he talks about his rights and some of the reasons for that, those rights is support those in full-time ministry well so they can focus on ministry because if they're spending their time focusing on how is my family going to eat or how are we going to pay bills that is taking away attention from ministry so it needs to be a fair livable wage third point those in ministries must not allow support levels to define their ministry to certain people this comes i'm taking this from the patronage system and why paul felt that this could be a stumbling block what that means is no one in ministry, whether it's pastors or someone else in ministry, should decide who to minister to based on what they think their giving levels are. Can you see where that would be a temptation? Okay, shouldn't happen. One of the safeguards at Village that we do is none of the pastors and staff know who gives what here. And I like it that way. That's the way it should be, I believe, for a church. Um, I don't want to know. I don't even want that temptation so that's one of the safeguards we have, but that applies to any level of ministry. We're never to base our ministry based on how much we think somebody's giving. Paul didn't. Fourth one sort of goes is the flip side of that. Congregations should not think of salaries or giving levels as a way of influencing a pastor to their desires. That also is from the patronage system. Fifth one, and I end, end with this. Every one of us should be personally involved in giving. Every one of us. It's going to be at different levels for each of us, but we know from Scripture that every one of us should be involved. Myself included. Pastors included. See, the purpose for giving, we see in 2 Corinthians 9, is twofold. It's to supply for the needs of ministry, but it's also to show gratitude to God, thanksgiving to God. A couple of weeks ago I was teaching in Reality Check and we were looking at Abraham and he goes and he rescues Lot and he has all this loot from the rescue. He comes back and, and Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, Yahweh, comes out. What does Abraham do? He gives him 10% just as a way of saying thank you. Gratitude to God. You know, One of the things that, that we practice and I encourage others to practice, anything that comes in, any money that comes in, give a portion of it back to God. It's not about a ritual legalistic tithing. It's about saying, God, I am grateful to everything you've given me. I'm going to give some of it back. It's an act of worship. This is why we've, I don't know if you've noticed the last couple months, months, we're moving our offering into worship because it's an act of worship. What I was noticing is during offering, it became a chat time. Sort of a throwaway time in our service. That's, it's not about getting the money. It's about offering this to God in gratitude to God. And we wanted to remind ourselves of the purpose for giving. Every one of us should be personally involved in that. Those are sort of subpoints to the main point of giving up our rights for the gospel. In, I want to end by reading some Miranda rights. Speaking of rights, you know, you've seen in TV shows, someone gets arrested, what do they always say first? You have the right to remain silent, yeah. What are Miranda rights for believers? Have you thought about that? What if someone was saved and the first thing we said was, Child, you have the right to remain silent from now on about your rights. You gave them all up when Christ bought you with His blood, and you forfeited any claim you thought you had on your person, your possessions, and your life. You are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to Him. If the Lord of the universe gave up all of His rights for a sinner like you, let's have no more quibbling from you about yours. You have already been given that which you had no right to expect in order to nullify the damnation you were fully entitled to receive. Wow. Puts it in perspective. The Gospel Loving brothers and sisters in Christ. My rights. That's what Paul is driving home here. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of areas that we are holding on to our rights. Maybe areas we get annoyed with each other at or things we get annoyed with. Ways that we want it done our way. Lord, ways that we try to take control at times, try to assert ourselves above other people. Lord, help us to put all aside for the Gospel. Lord, what an incredible gift that you died on the cross in my place when I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it. In fact, I deserved the exact opposite. Lord, what else can I do but worship you and to give my rights to you? in Jesus' name.